Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. This week, Thea's on one of her periodic holidays that seem to emerge confidently from the thicket of working life like a shaggy, slightly bedraggled dog. She's not on holiday, can I, knew, I just say. I Hello, say and she's not on holiday, she's working. I was, well, let me introduce you first. Yeah. Indie pop star, arts editor... Hello. Hello, Lucy Dallas. <laughs> Hello. Uh, she's not here, though. She's um, not I here. I inferred that she was off. Well, she, she sent, she sent an, email saying, an email saying, saying I'm, I'm working. Yeah. She's just not physically present. There's a lot of that. Is it work? If, you're not, if a person is working and no one can hear them, are they working? <laughs> she then sent us evidence of her yeah, work, yeah, to be fair. Fair enough. fair enough. And also, I was going to talk to her about, because uh, Catherine Morris, one of our colleagues, says that Thea despises tuna melts. She does. For all sorts did you know of that reasons. as well? I did know that. It's, it's, it's like a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. She hates it that much. Because you don't do fish and cheese. Fish and cheese. It's, just, it's correct. And I think it's Italian. It's an Italian rule, isn't it? That's probably not the only reason. No. So she doesn't have tuna on pizza. I don't like the way you, you cook, have tuna on pizza. It goes all dry, doesn't it? It's just it's, it's not disgusting. Right. It's not right. Fish pie has, has cheese and fish. I think the, the cheese is hidden, so it doesn't matter. I think there may be other dishes which I'm going to think about over the next 45 minutes. And then maybe by the end of the show, I might have come up with a fish and cheese combination that's acceptable. Please tell me that that is not what you'll be thinking about for the next 45 minutes. I'd like to be able to tell you that, but I can't. Um, this is the bit where I say Google TLS subscriptions and get on board. So Google TLS subscriptions and get on board this week. We have one of our periodic art history-themed papers helmed by our editor Anna Vo, Freud, Bauhaus, Fabric and much more. She'll be popping in to tell us about it. And who's up for an opera featuring Jack the Ripper, focusing on all those dead female victims of his? Not me, <laughs> you, you if I'm me honest. You to say me? No, not me. No, but I could, we could be wrong. We'll find out. Because mm-hmm. Anna Picard has been to see Ian Bell's new piece of work and will let us know what we should be thinking. Women on the Verge is how you've headlined it, Lucy. There is another opera review in the paper with a different headline that you doubted. Should we, should we share that with the group? Well, we have to now because you yes. brought it up. Yep. 
Yes, because it's actually the title of a very well-known aria, but it was in Italian, and I thought, is that too silly so to have a So, Eluccia van la Stella, yeah. which is from Tosca. I recognise that. And you I'm knew not it that, straight but away I'm not and started, started humming it at me. Yeah. So, that's, you know, so that's, that's acceptable. Fine, of course. Yeah, I don't feel I'm as hugely cultured in the realm of opera, so I think if I've heard of it, it's in the Nessendorma. But I think it sphere. is, though, that one, isn't it, anyway? I, I wasn't sure, that's why I was asking you. And yeah. then you immediately hummed it to me, okay. thereby proving um, well, that it was fine. This is a test for, I think, if you are, if you don't know Eluccia van der Stella, that means you know less about opera than me, which means very, very little. Um, yeah, I don't know. You might like a different sort of opera. That's true. All right, well, we'll talk about opera later. Now, who am I talking about if I describe people throwing themselves off battlements and onto funeral pyres, killing themselves with their father's dagger, being killed by their brother, father, husband or fate with a capital F, or dying of horrible wasting diseases, probably as a result of a life spent in poverty and misfortune? Yes, we're talking about women in opera. Oh. That's who I'm talking about. Oh. Perhaps the unluckiest set of people you'll come across. <laughs> or is opera one of the most misogynistic art forms? Is as it? has been suggested. Well, we're going to talk about that <laughs> in a minute. But we're not necessarily going to solve it, oh, that no, one, because okay. that's quite a big one. But we are going to talk about a new work, which is on at English National Opera, composed by Ian Bell to a libretto by Emma Jenkins. And the subject of this one is, brace yourselves, the victims of Jack the Ripper. Anna Picard has reviewed it for us and joins us in the studio to talk it through. Anna, many thanks for coming in and Thank talking you. to us. Um, first of all, just for a bit of background, it's a big production for a company which has been in a lot of trouble lately, isn't it? Do, they, do you think they have a lot riding on the success of it? I think they do because they're clearly trying to make a point about taking what could broadly be said a sort of feminist angle on uh, probably the the most misogynistic subject you could get. I don't think that they're particularly seeing that through. I mean, for instance, on the first night um, uh, of uh, Jack the Ripper, the women of Whitechapel, I noticed that they'd left in place in the foyer um, the golden beaver uh, statue, which was the yes, it is supposed to be. You like mentioned that. this to me, um, and I didn't know. Uh, the do golden you, beaver. Anna, thank God you've come in and you told the golden beaver anecdote straight away. The, 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 the golden beaver in the current ENO production of uh, The Merry Widow is the uh, national symbol of Pontevedro. Uh, which is a, a, a made-up uh, Balkan uh, country. And, yes, uh, I think it's no holds barred with the puns on that particular Really? <laughs> yes, really. So the golden beaver's there in the foyer as you get in, and, and there's a sign-up saying uh, something to the effect of, uh, you know, please feel free to pose and take a selfie. So, you know, fine, if you're in for that kind of joke, good, ha- have fun. But if you're arriving to see an opera that is supposed to be about giving voice and dignity to five women who were killed and then mutilated, I would suggest yeah. that possibly you take it out for the yeah. evening. Get rid of the beaver. I think yes. It seems to be a fair, a fair Put point. Put it somewhere else. But it's interesting. Yes. Yeah. Retire it for a you bit. You make a fascinating yeah. point about the title. It's an opera giving voice to five women, but it's not called The Women of Whitechapel. It's called Jack the Ripper. Well, according to an interview that uh, Jenkins and Bell did with The Guardian, uh, that was a marketing decision. Um, presumably it's also a marketing decision that the hashtag on social media is hashtag ENO Ripper. So it seems to me that this is your point about not seeing it through. Either this is a 
giving voice to the voiceless, you know, and you, you get this, it's a legitimate thing to do. Well. Or it's it's both again, trying to do yeah. that and also make a buck off the macabre world of Jack the Ripper, which is a big London industry. I mean, you, you, you go it's, anywhere around Whitechapel, people will tell you Jack the Ripper stuff. Mm. So, it, it, yeah. It's incredible. It, it, it's had such extraordinary sticking power. I mean, it's really quite tedious, this, this, this ghoulish fascination. I think that there is a great deal of sincerity in the way that Jenkins and Bell have approached their subject and obviously a great deal of sincerity on stage uh, in the individual performers. I'm just not convinced that that's coming from the company. I think they're sort of trying to tr- trying to trade off what really are horrific crimes. They're trying to be kind of salacious and tasteful at the same time. Yes, yeah. and uh, so you've got the salaciousness, which is, I think, possibly just attendant to the subject mm. no matter how you approach yeah. it yeah the tastefulness which i think is almost like a sort of straight jacket on the production sexual violence on the operatic stage uh you, you, you know, certainly contributed to that quite a lot mm. in some of its productions and sometimes in productions where uh in the source material and i'm all in favor of taking the source material and doing whatever the hell you want to do with it it will survive it will survive multiple interpretations but to you know add explicitly violent imagery to texts where the violence is implied that's it, become a bit of a cliche and, in that, the happen, opera house. and that happens in you know and uh, elsewhere oh and elsewhere yeah absolutely yeah but and you say in your review that a couple of earlier the uh, artistic director um he's done a couple of others and in traviata uh he made violetta dig her own grave which you felt was kind of adding to the considerable amount of suffering she's already got in the opera, and also Bluebeard's Castle, I think, was, was that was set... Is that right? In Fritzl's cellar? Joseph Fritzl's cellar? Yes. And again, Bluebeard, Bluebeard's Castle is already, you know... It's we, already horrific enough. Because we already know that the other wives are waiting behind the... Oh, am I going to get the number right? Seventh door? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say eighth, yes. Yes, who knows? Not the sure. last door. And yeah. is that an issue particularly? Because, you know, you always think whenever you talk to people who are involved in crime fiction, mm. it's always a female victim. Well, is, uh, is, it, that, is, that, is that an issue with... I mean, are we, looking, are we sort of seeing the same problem through through a different prism? Is that, what, is that just the way that art has often worked in different forms? I'm not convinced about this, and Lucy and I have talked about this quite mm. a lot over the last few years, haven't we? Because mm. it does always seem to be a female corpse at the end, but it isn't, actually. There's particular problems with this one because everybody knows what's going to happen. And it's funny that they've, they're burdened by the amount of research that they've done, and they're burdened by a desire to be truthful to what evidence we have, which is which is pretty thin. So when it comes to the differentiation of the victims, that is quite thin. And where there are quotable remarks, they sound now to our ears, I mean, things like hearts of gold, lonely hearts, these sound like cliches. Yeah. Now, you could say, I love you is a cliche too. It's to do with the way that it's set up. So we have... Polly, uh, Marianne Nichols, uh, uh, who likes pretty things, a bonnet, I mean, rather like Mimi in La Boheme. Um, Annie, whose defining characteristic is that she's warm-hearted. Liz, who enjoys sex, um, that's uh, Susan Bullock. She gets to sing a nice number called 
I Love a Fireman. And this is where um, Jenkins does allow herself a bit more poetry. There's a lovely line about um, oh, hands like warming pans. <laughs> that sounds very attractive. Uh, Catherine loves to drink. And Mary, who's the last of the canonical victims, and I find even that, I know, that yeah. phrase just yeah. so troubling... Um, she becomes a sort of moral centre of the work in, in that she's, she is literate and she wants to save her fictional daughter from a life of prostitution. Is this because opera is by its very nature melodrama and the thing about melodrama is is it's oversimplified and it's often cliché ridden and it paints in very broad colours? I think you would struggle to find more than a very small handful of opera uh, libretti that read on the page as great literary works yeah. because that's not what they're really supposed to do opera's great gift actually is ambiguity i mean what you see on stage in terms of a of a, of a plot or the words might, might seem like like sort of middlebrow even lowbrow entertainment but the gift is that the words can tell you one thing while the music tells you another. That's mm. not particularly happening here. So if this had been redeemed by greater music, mm. you'd forgive the characterization more? I wish I could say yes. I'm not sure I can because I, I, I feel... I mean, I went in hoping that they would find a way around it. Nobody, no critic wants to go and see a work fail. I think that maybe if they'd done it five or six years ago, just when the boredom, I suppose, with dramas like, um, say, The Fall, where you've got this ridiculously hot serial killer, um, were starting to attract a lot of criticism, then maybe they would have got away with it more. Uh, or maybe I would have felt less less critical about it. Right at the moment, if you, if, if you take this out of opera and away from works like, say, uh, uh, Greek, which is now, what, 30 years old, um, or 448 Psychosis, both of those had, had, had fantastically good libretti. What you've got is something that's, that seems already really quite outdated because if you go to the cinema, you can see The Favourite. If you watch TV, you can see Killing Eve, you can see Fleabag. And what you have there is women expressing emotions that are not considered polite to express in normal life. Uh, you can be rageful, you can be bitter, you can be vindictive, you can be furious, you can be lustful, you can just want to shag or just want to slap somebody, you, you, you can swear at them. All of these things are allowed in a way which, ironically, opera has actually always had. Yes, and actually you can just think that it, they would do brilliantly in opera because you would go, somebody would go from having a tantrum or something like that Mad into scenes. an aria. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually it's those extremes. It's, well, that's not the only thing it does brilliantly, but it's the moment when it's supposed to be that you, I think that you can't speak, but you have to sing. It's the only way to express you yes. know, what's going on. The action stops and then you dwell with the emotion. But you can argue, therefore, that opera gives this an un you protection because ultimately if you went and pitched to say ITV we're going to do Jack the Ripper and it's just going to be the five victims they're all going to have one characteristic and then they're all going to be eventually knocked off in the way we all are going to happen there's nothing other than that in this show I'm not that wouldn't get made now I don't think I think it would do you I do think it would because I, I, I think that what you have here is rather than melodrama you've got docudrama 
And we know from things like, uh, oh, what is the phrase, um, responsible adult. Was it Janet Leach, the, 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 the person who was present um, when Fred West was being yeah. questioned? I suppose what really, really troubles me is a simple murder, insofar as there can ever be such a thing, of one woman or maybe even two women is never going to be enough to be a story. If you add more women, I mean, I don't know if there's already been a drama about uh, Steve Wright, who was the uh, Suffolk Strangler, then it becomes more interesting. And I think we have to really look at what it is that we are interested in. And I think you find that in those autopsy photographs. Appropriate adult, it was called appropriate adult. Okay, thank you. I completely applaud Bell and Jenkins for attempting to restore dignity to these women, but I don't know how far you can restore dignity to a woman whose sexual organs have been removed. This is described, by the way, in the libretto in an autopsy scene, and whose nose has been cut off. The, your piece goes with, also with a review because there's a new book out which has actually done some historical research into the whole thing, apparently almost for the first time, and which shows that at least one of the women was not a prostitute, but she was homeless, uh, which I think the opera also has taken on board. The book's by Hallie Rubenhold, and it's called The Five, i.e. Um, The Five Women. But I know talking to someone at the TLS who's read it who said... Well, this is all being pitched to a market as this is recentering the women and giving voice to the voiceless. But actually, it is another retelling of a story with a macabre sexual element. And whether on however it's pitched, whatever you might say, that's the core of the story. The core of the story is let's prod around this again. I'm not convinced by that. I mean, I I, I, I haven't read Hallie Rubenfeld's book, but even from you know, researching subjects like core operatic subjects like La Traviata, there, there, there is still a wealth of evidence um, of, of, uh, about attempts to redeem the prostitute in Victorian London, attempts to demean the prostitute in Victorian London. I, I do think that what uh, to, to for both the opera and for the book to point out the fact that you've got vagrancy, you've got homelessness added in, is extremely interesting. Mm. And I think that makes certainly the book worthwhile. It's it's easier to tell that kind of research in a book than it is on stage. Um, the book doesn't I mean, have to be so dramatic. It, well, the opera isn't terribly dramatic <laughs> okay, either, really. Um, uh, but but, but, um, but we know we, domestic it? abuse, I mean, you know, most women experience sexual violence in the domestic sphere. If, if you don't have a home, I mean, you are vulnerable to anyone passing by well and uh, and the kind of contempt that you see sometimes you know outside the station late at night towards homeless people of both sexes usually addicted as indeed were many of these women Mm. um to alcohol or to drugs things have not changed that much and we've got a sex for rent scandal yeah it's precarity but we are ending up though still with this myth effect because jack the ripper ultimately no one knows truly what happens they you know about every year someone produces another piece of often very thin evidence that sort of recasts another person as as it there's just been a new one there's there's been another one as a polish guy was the the claim and then that got rebuffed and that rebuffed fairly quickly but it's interesting and indicative and probably not indicative in a good way that this story holds such a command on people why because there have been any number of serial killers in British history and in world history and in literary history. Why this one? Why does this one keep 
nagging at people. Is it what you're saying, Anna, that this is, it's because the women are vic- victims of women and they're sex workers and that combination titillates people even when they're pretending not to be titillated? No, I, 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 I think um, there's a combination of a fascination with old London that feeds into it. Um, Ripper Street, the, the, the TV series, uh, feeds into that, uh, but, but you know, they have a sharp script, which is, which is really good. I think it's the fact that the assailant, uh, the murderer, is unknown, remains unknown. Mm. I mean, the other serial killers, we can probably name them. I, it does disturb me, as it did in you know, after nine eleven. I'm thinking, you know, everybody knows the name Muhammad Atta. How many people know, you know, apart from those who are closely attached to anybody who died that day? How many people know the names of the victim? And, and I think that had had Ian Bell and, uh, and Emma Jenkins framed this as a requiem, perhaps it might have been better. I'm thinking back mm. of, of John Adams's on the transmigration of souls, which was attacked at the, uh, at the time, a year after the event. I was at the New York premiere, actually. It was attacked as being maudlin in the British press when it was first performed over in London. I don't think it's maudlin because I think that the one beautiful thing that he did was he taped people reading out the names of those who had died. And... I can remember one of them still, and it's a, and it's a message to, to to one of the people who died. It's I love you, Dave Fontana. So you know maybe we shouldn't be too harsh on on Jenkins and Bell because at least we are remembering people's full names, even if they become, even, even if it comes with a sort of an element of umpapa. But yeah. how inexcusable then for them that this is called Jack the Ripper. Hashtag E and O Ripper. Wasn't, that wasn't the I'm artistic. Not saying, I'm not saying it's them. They wanted just, the yeah. women of Whitechapel, yeah. as far as I can understand. Yeah. And also um, in the opera, I think we should point out that, that he's the the killer is not in the opera. He doesn't appear, and you don't see the murders, do you? No, 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 no. You you get a sort of darkness coming from the pit. You get uh, sort of sol ponticello strings. Mm. And, uh, 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 I was going uh, to ask about cloudy, the music. <laughs> cloudy activity. Yes, I'm sorry. We've <laughs> no, barely that's touched all right. on the music. Been... <laughs> the music is it's very very much uh, on the Benjamin Britten lines, and that is not a criticism and I'm not uh, accusing him of pastiche in any way because Britain wrote in English so very very beautifully Mm. the quintet for the five women uh, is exquisitely written mm-hmm. and it's been tailor-made for these five voices you know one of them is a rising star natalia romanu the others are all hugely yes established, it's a wonderful cast isn't uh, it vintage singers of their of, of their generation well we could talk about this forever and it's such a it's so interesting because like you say the music's interesting but the politics are interesting the the attendant cultural implications are, are interesting but we'll have to leave it there Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. 
Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week we consider the everlasting male gaze of Lucian Freud, the painter with what a friend once called a round-the-cock work ethic. Ruth Gilding examines a two-volume monograph about this tactile forensic figure. Each of my toes was having its portrait painted, said one sitter, which is creepy. An artist who never wished to relinquish control to those who might observe and critique him. The piece is part of our art history special this week, which coincides with an important centenary, that of the Bauhaus, a progressive art school set up in Weimar in 1919 under the directorship of Walter Gropius. It lasted for 14 years before the rise of Nazism and had this in its manifesto. Together, let us desire, conceive and create the new structure of the future, which will embrace architecture and sculpture and painting in one unity and which will one day rise towards heaven from the hands of a million workers like the crystal symbol of a new faith. So, fairly ambitious then. So, to talk about all of this and maybe even more if we get time is Anna Vo. Anna, hello. Hello. Before we start, I want to know how much, Lucy, you knew about the Bauhaus. I know Anna will have known a lot about the Bauhaus before this. You, are you going for straight honesty? Honesty, yeah. I'm going to make this easier. You want to make me sound good? No, I'm, I'm going to make this easier. I had heard the word and didn't know what it was. So I thought it was, knew it was a school of architecture, I would have said. I would have said quite bare. German, possibly Austrian, but mostly I would have thought about the band. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of this band. Have you heard of this band? Yes, I've heard of the band. And what's the song? You're possibly with? a bit too young. Am though? I too young for the band? When was the band out? It is. Yeah, yeah it I is was I too young. Um, really good goths. Oh, God. Never mind the architecture. Yeah. Do listen to Bauhaus. Well, I feel we've done the band then. So, Anna, you had heard of Bauhaus. I had heard of Bauhaus, but I think you're right that it's kind of invisible. As a notion, although it is, as our, all our reviewers have pointed out, just infused in our in our lives. So, so what? So, so it's a centenary. It's a hundred years old. It lasted fourteen years. It lasted fourteen years. It was a school. It was an art school. It's important, I think, to remember the moment at which it emerged, which was nineteen nineteen, and old Europe lay in ruins. Gropius, who who founded it, and it was a state-funded school had a very utopian vision that was going to beautify the life of the ordinary working man. So our cities were expanding, there was mass production, we were thinking more about the ordinary man. The bit that Gropius said before, you, when you cited his, um, manifesto. his manifesto, he had a, a sentence before about breaking down the boundaries between the artist and the ordinary man. So wh- what does he mean by that? Is that that to, to give credit to artists more and to our ordinary men and craftsmen, treat them like artists? Or is it more about 
the fact that everyone should get art inflected products in their life. They should live in houses that have been beautifully designed. They should have products yes. that have been beautifully designed. Should, that how could we make all aspects of our life more beautiful? How could we? You know, city life was was banal and brutal and ugly. And how could we make it better? And there had been thoughts about that before with, for example, the pre-Raphaelites. And it's interesting that Fiona McCarthy, who's written this biography of Gropius, yep. was also the um, biographer of William Morris, who ah. was the figurehead of the arts and crafts movement. So you had the arts and crafts movement, which was a bit more nostalgic. A bit more airy-fairy um, than this, isn't it? Well, it, it was nostalgic and it looked back to a simpler, more folksy, yeah. had a more folksy aesthetic, looked back to the medieval era. But that was before the age of the machine. By the time you get to 1919, you, you have had four years of mechanised warfare. Um, so this is modernism. I mean, this is modernism at its beginning, the post-First World War modernism. So the world has been destroyed and this is the, this is, so. this is the answer to it. It seems to me also to be an amazingly confident thing to do of the German nation, which has just had this awful war and presumably got no money. Well, they've got no money. Funded to but that's the really interesting thing that yeah. actually none of our reviewers brought out is that the school was totally impoverished. I mean, the students were utterly starving, mm. as, as everybody was in Germany in 1919. They had no furniture, they squatted on the floor, no materials, and that probably had something to do with with the way in which they worked, or the way in which they taught, the, the whole ethos of the school. This is one of the ways in which it is hugely influential without us really understanding its influence. So one of its principal teachers was somebody called Johannes Itten, and he had been an elementary school teacher. And He was Swiss, wasn't he? But not a, he's not a household name by any means now. Itten isn't a household name. And he fell out with Gropius and he was, they didn't have quite the same vision. He was very anti-technology, for example. Yeah. But his teaching style, that bringing in whatever they could find lying around, bits of old wire, bits of brick, some soil, like you would with, in a kindergarten, mm. like you would with small children, and just get, play with this stuff. So the idea of playing with materials, uh, experimenting, just seeing what connections things throw up that's really gone through all of our, our education ever since and has there been an aesthetic that came out of this i mean would we be able to recognize i mean there's a piece about the influence of bauhaus in the west it's called in the paper which is by uh, francis spaulding how bauhaus influenced modern design and modernity generally do you think there is an aesthetic? Would we be able to pick it up? Or is it so successfully... I mean, almost a, the true success of influence is when you can't even see it because it's it's sort of entwined into every fibre. Is that what we're saying with, with Bauhaus? No, I think you would be able to tell a, a very particular Bauhaus aesthetic, which is what we would think of as quintessentially modernist glass and steel. They produced a couple of very iconic pieces of furniture, which you'll see in all sorts of... You might have them in your house, like the Vasily chair. Everybody's got that that was designed by Marcel Breuer. It's in lots of swanky offices. Oh, is, is it, we've got a, have we got a picture that's of it? N that's not it. Oh, no. there's another. We've got a picture um, of the paper of chair by Marcel Breuer, which is like a lounger chair, but it's got lots of... It's very clean lines, isn't it? It's very... It's very geometric. Yeah. That's not quintessential, I wouldn't say. Our illustration isn't essential Bauhaus. My house is just filled with 
sofas with rips in it, so I don't really... That's, I don't, that's I probably know. more William Murray, isn't it? <laughs> 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 that's a very, house in the sense that's of a, that's furniture a very, of the people. Yeah, it's a very dignified <laughs> way of saying that's, oh, that's a very William Morris um, sofa. <laughs> so who was Gropius then? Because at one level, this is an art school in Weimar, Germany, that lasted 14 years with Walter Gropius being appointed a young man he then, yeah. it didn't succeed. Nazism rose up. He then left the country and went, went abroad. He was only there until, mm, I'm not quite sure, but there were two other people after him. So he didn't even, so he didn't even last the whole time? He didn't last the whole time. So at one level, it seems extraordinary that this even exists as a phenomenon. What was so, what, what was so special about it? Just because it was the idea of... I uh, think they were all, they were all extraordinary personalities and they did all have a vision. And... Then there was the diaspora. They all took it all all over the world. And they all went and taught, didn't they? Or a lot of them and, went and taught. And a lot of them went and taught and took those those lessons that, that had been learned about how you how you teach art. So basically, um, almost the rise of Nazism led to the diaspora because uh, totally, yeah. because this was a country by 90... So if you think by 1930, it was already on the on the turn. That's 11 years into the school's history. So it was almost it, by necessity everyone had to leave and, and, and seek their fortunes elsewhere. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and that the way the influence spread. We have a piece by about Joseph Albers, husband of Annie. Yes. See, I'd heard of Annie Albers, big exhibition, where was it? Tate. Tate, which was um, textiles isn't it? Mm. Annie Weaving, Albers. yes. Weaving. How big a figure is Joseph Albers? It says in the piece that he had a fervent wish to be a great artist. And it doesn't strike yes. me that the, that the posterity has awarded him that. Marjorie Perloff's written about this in the paper. Well, that's part of the point of the, of the book, to remind us that he was more than a teacher. This is Charles and Darwin's book. Charles Darwin's book. And let's consider him as an artist. As far as I remember in the piece, there is some description of the way in which he did use bits of soil and wire and, and make those, those connections. Yeah. Um, yeah, he used cheap materials and wanted to see what you could do with them. Yes, so his father, um, Albers's father, had been an interior decorator, I suppose you'd call him, working, making, doing ragging and marbling, those sorts of techniques, um, which remained important. The idea of the materiality. But ultimately, he's not as well known as his wife. That's quite rare. I don't think that's true. I think, really? I mean, oh, I think I Annie is having the... a moment. Much, yeah. you know, it's belated. Um, Do you like her stuff? Oh, I love her stuff, yeah. Why? It, it is emotional. When you stand in front of a, a, a one of her textiles, it just has this enormous emotional power. Really? Yeah. I just find that... Well, I'm not, Which I'm, I'm I think not, that I'm, the I'm, pictures, her husband's pictures, don't have. Well, they don't. And there's an argument, this, geom this geometric pattern... Because you know, I was looking for the cover for Well, that's not what he's famous for. So what's he famous for? He is famous for painting the square, the homage to a square. Oh. And <laughs> he did 2,000 of them. They're Lots just um, coloured squares, aren't they? They're coloured squares. If we're being honest. And they vary, the colours vary, and the sizes of the squares vary, and the edgings vary. Sometimes there's squares inside. Yeah. I mean, you did 2,000. They're not all exactly the same. No. I mean, I don't, um, want, I don't wish this to become a, a sort of philistine, how is that art <laughs> question. I'm not going to say that. But I looked at them. They, I mean, you described them very accurately. They're, they're coloured squares of different sizes. Is that Are you asking me to defend them? No, no. <laughs> so I, I, what do you think? Have you seen any, Lucy? The no, well, I think I we've all seen them. 
but we're probably really used to them. We just take them for granted. Well, they're just they're squares. They're just, they're just because I thought it was Malevich. No. Didn't he do squares? He did squares too. Black. Lots of Yeah, very, very black. Right, actually. I'm going to show you yeah. a picture of a square, Lucy. So can... I didn't know. No, let's I know. A, let's, let's, let's have an artistic <laughs> reaction to you right now. I thought it was the okay. same sort Lucy, of thing Lucy, arts editor of the TLA. <laughs> well, this is radically unfair. <laughs> Here it is. Okay, <laughs> we have now a picture. Lovely. So if, if to play along at home, you can just Google Joseph Alba's <laughs> squares. And the, the screen that you see is what I'm showing oh, to I Lucy now. I do know those. I've seen some of them. I've seen, you see the top right hand one, the blue and green one. Blue and green squares. Now, you will have seen them because. As Marjorie Garb-Perloff points out, there's not a museum that doesn't have one. Because there are 2,000. And because he made so many, that's slightly devalued them. Mm. We've got to move on, because we've got to talk about Lucian Freud, because there's a big book, a two-volume book, about um, his his whole oeuvre, led by Martin Gayford. And we have a review by Ruth Gilding about this, Anna. And the suggestion here is that Freud is kind of preserved and cared for by a sort of male club of people is sort of what Ruth is implying. Lots of sort of male curators and male figures want to preserve the the reputation and legacy of, of Freud. Do you think that's right? And he's a very male... Well, that's what it looks like. He's a very male painter, isn't he? Extraordinarily male gaze. That's what it looks like, um, that's, that's... except it's it's also obvious that he has so much female loyalty, but the, the women don't seem to be in the position of curatorial power. To talk about it. Because no. this piece reads, at least, that... He's a bit of a, a creep. Well, that's what she says. Yeah. He, that, but he might have done it. She she wonders if it was quite conscious, this a need to make him... That he was quite naughty when he went to school at Dartington, which was already a very open and free kind of education, and that he knew how to manipulate people because he'd been his mother's favourite and was used to a lot of love and attention and knew how to get it and created an adult persona that was a little bit nasty. So a bit controlling. I was struck by the thing where it said, because clearly he was incredibly controlling of when the sitters were there because he kept his attention on them all the time. And drugging them even. Dr- <laughs> drugged them and made them hold on to animals and things like yeah. that. But not, and that sounds kind of brutal. It wasn't brutal, was it? But, but it I was very controlling and as quite brutal. aggressive. But then, then she also says, but he also was kept them entertained. He kept, he told them stories and songs and poems and jokes and gave them snacks because he couldn't, he wanted their attention all the time. He had to sort of charm them and keep them on. Even even creepier, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make it sound any better. No, he's a children's yeah. entertainer as well. He makes it even even there creepier. We go. Uh, what about the pictures, though? Well, Ruth, let's talk about the pictures. Ruth says. His genius reputation approaching that of his grandfather, Lucian versus Sigmund. What do we think about that? Where, where, what do you think, Anna, where he is in the pantheon? Do you find him a genius? Because is he, is, he's, he's very he's now very high in the canon, I would yes, have thought. Yes, he is. Um, and it, it seems to have got more and more so in the last 20 years. When he said, I come from a really boring family. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true, though, is it? <laughs> yes. It's a good joke, um, but... I, 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 was I very mean, they're famous in different ways, aren't they? But we know they're from the same family. Yeah. But is he, I mean, is he a genius, do you feel? I mean, it's very hard to bandy those terms around. But when you look at his stuff, I um, mean, you must have been to the big exhibitions I that existed. I suppose I think he's a bit overrated. Do you? Why is that? Well, I much prefer, you know, Ruth talks about the paintings pre-Francis Bacon yeah. and post-Francis Bacon. And I much prefer the pre the 1940s stuff. And how, how are they different? Are they really different? Because he hadn't really discovered 
paint in the same way, so they're very flat surfaced and they're almost surrealist. Yeah, you'll know the ones I mean that the figures have got enormous eyes. Yeah, I know exactly. He's yeah. holding a, she's holding a cat. Yeah, a kind of half strangled cat. Mm. <laughs> and then he becomes <laughs> after, after bacon. Blood. He becomes hyper, sort of hyper realist and sort well, of Well, then the paint becomes thick. much thicker, and yeah. it, and the paintings have texture, and they're much bigger, and. They're completely different. And lots and lots of nudes, aren't there? A lot of flesh. I suppose one way of measuring how great he is 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 to think about where his influence is, how he might have influenced people who's come after him. And there isn't really a school of Lucian Freud. That's interesting. And actually, he's um, such a big figure, they, they, could, they, they should be. Well, it just makes you wonder. Well, I mean, there is... The, I, I can think of one artist, Jenny Saville. But, but not a school. But not a school. Well, we started out with a school and we're ending with a lack of a school. Um, um, Anna Vo, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to the Annas, Vo and Picard, and to Lucy Dallas. Thank you for having me. Enjoy it. Of course. It's very yeah. you, actually. It's very arts, wasn't it? Uh, yes. I'm not <laughs> Do you know what you... very you meant? Well, there, no, you're the minute. arts editor. I'm not, I am. I'm not suggesting I am. that, you know, serial killing and. Uh, I could have, I'd have been interested in one about maths and astrophysics as well, though I wouldn't have been able to help out very much well, challenge accepted <laughs> uh, do get a copy of the paper if you can if only for a spread in which we focus on Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan and the Nomad Games which includes the fiercely competitive event honouring a grandmother sounds good tough it's a tough tough one to win uh, next week sex robots <laughs> you've been saying this all week <laughs> I've not invented it. We have a no. We, I know. No. I know. It's a, it's a tech special. We're going to look at sex robots. Ian, we've got an extract from Ian McEwan, and we're also looking at Google and Facebook and trusts and and surveillance capitalism. So it's not just sex robots, but I'm summarising it in my glib way as sex robots. You have to tune in for that. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.